the Liberty Showdown of Epic Proportions. In a fierce battle for survival, Johnny and Raylene have defeated the nonpartisan put-downs and hacks by using their weapons of logic and reason, sending the group of nonpartisans running away with their tail between their legs after attacking their ship, Liberty One. Not compromising principles or liberty, Johnny and Raylene have arrived on Earth to assist Mike Boudet. But unbeknown to them, Commander Peter G. Klein from the planet Mises has assisted Mike Boudet with the Coast Cannon, which renders that when there are conflicting property rights, bargaining between the parties involved will lead to an efficient outcome has thwarted the main communist deluge. The state on Earth has passed a bill to eliminate free speech and has authorized the most dangerous assassin, Red Ronnie, and his crew of red diaper babies to strike him down. Hidden in the shadows on Earth is the Philosopher and her band of rebels, the Voluntarius, that has plans to strike back. Peter G. Klein is a Carl Manger Research Fellow of the Mises Institute and a WWK Ruth Chair and Professor of Entrepreneurship at Baylor University's Hankammer School of Business. His research focuses on the economics of entrepreneurship and business organization with applications to innovation, regulation, and economic growth. Will Johnny and Raylene, with the help of Commander Klein, help stop Ronnie Red and the Red Diaper Babies? Will the philosopher find herself pitted against the state? Stay tuned to hear Peter G. Klein on episode 39 of Blast Off with Johnny Rocket. Transmitting directly from the launch pad. Blue collar to your cell tower. The rock and roll libertarian himself. It's time to blast off with Johnny Rocket. Hey, this is Blast Off with Johnny Rocket, and I am here with my ray of truth, Miss Really Lenhard. Bam! Oh, Johnny, I love your intros. How are you? I am doing well. I almost said good. That would have been improper English. Thank you for being on point with your English. Yes, I speak English goodly. Yes, I do. Today is the day. Today (laughs) is the day. You know what? Uh, How you been? How was your week so far? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's been great. It's been really busy. Um, it's, it's the spring cleaning thing, and I'm trying to get everything organized with uh, being more social with people that I care about. I'm, and, you know, LPWA conventions coming up, which I'm nervous about, but I know you have had a lot going on. Ah, uh, I know. What's new? How's the house thing going? This month has just been, like, hectic. You know, my mom passing away a couple weeks ago. Um, on top of that, Kim's buying a home. And next month, we're getting married. So you just combined everything all in one month. This is the month. So yeah. it's just been a big pain in the ass. I haven't been really. No, it, it really has. It's just been a pain in the ass. And, you know, I was going to talk to you really quick before we bring out our guest and do the show is something that does chat my ass is the, the in regards to Kim buying a house. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about this the other day because I'm. she was trying to buy a house and she was just like, okay, so what do I need to do? And they're like, well, we need to look at your statements. We need to, you know, to know where the money is coming from, how mm-hmm. you're getting paid, well, who's your employer, this, 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 and that. And you can't use any money that was given to you by anyone else for your credit to be approved to buy a home. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, in 2008, you would walk in there and go, hey, I want to buy a house. And then the guy would go like, hey, how much, you know, how much do you make a year? And you can go like, I don't know, like 50,000 a year. And he'd be like, good enough. Here you go. Here's a home. And you're good to go. 
But now it's totally different. Now it's like it's like the pendulum has swung so dramatically. Well, I mean, considering all the cronyism involved there. Exactly. And, and then the bubble. and the, Oh, know. yeah. So you have all this stuff. So now instead of like being so loosey-goosey, this is all government mandated, mind you. Like, so mm-hmm. if it was the actual bank who was just like, hey, man, we're taking some extra, you know, extra precautions. Yeah. Well, now you're a big pain in the ass. And I may go to another bank and give my service to another bank or she might do that. Right. Mm-hmm. But in regards to this, this is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, how many, you know, checks and steps you have to take and make sure that this money is not get a gift or it, it's out of control. It's absolutely out of control. So right. that is my rant for the day. Sorry. Thanks for listening. <laughs> so Raylene, are you ready for our show? I am. Okay. Here we go. Capitalism is the greatest socioeconomic system in human history because it's so moral, so productive, the two features so essential to human survival and flourishing. Not everything is black and white. And on this show, we discuss the economic externalities, public goods, and crony capitalism. The Coast Theorem is a method of tackling the inefficiency caused by an externality by awarding property rights to the externality to one party and allowing the parties concerned to bargain their way to an efficient solution. In the case of a negative externality such as pollution, the property right to pollute could be awarded to the polluter and the victim of the pollution would have to offer to pay up to get the polluter to reduce their output. But does the government need to be involved in the awards provided? Our guest is Professor Peter G. Klein. Professor Klein is a Carl Manger Research Fellow of the Mises Institute and the W.W. Caruth Chair and Professor of Entrepreneurship at Baylor University's and Kammer School of Business. He is also a Senior Research Fellow at Baylor's Ba Center for Entrepreneurship and Free Enterprise and Adjunct Professor of Strategy and Management at the Norwegian School of Economics. Professor Klein received his Ph.D. in economics from the University of California, Berkeley, and his B.A. from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He co-founded the popular management blog, Organizations and Markets. Okay, Raylene, prepare for liftoff. Copy that, Johnny. Covers, tie-downs, and grounding cables. Removed as required. Communications connected. Check. Pre-amps in the green. Check. Cold beer. Double check. Thrusters are hot. Raylene, are you ready to rock? All systems go, Johnny. Let's blast off with Professor Klein, thank you so much for being here. Hey, Johnny, thanks for having me on your new show. I I absolutely love this format. (laughs) Well, we have fun, and we're going to take you into orbit and talk about economics. And uh, seriously, again, thank you so much for being here on the show, sir. And I guess the big question I have is before we begin with all this economic mumbo-jumbo, because you are a subject matter expert, it's your job, it's your gig. Not my gig, I'm just a poor old radio host, but... I think it's very poor, very poor. I'm very (laughs) broke. Uh, But before we begin, I think it's important that we discuss some terms. And I think it's important just so we have like the lexicon established. What is the difference between positive and normative economics? And why is it important to our listeners to understand this? And also, what is meant by the term value? Yeah, well, the terms uh, positive and normative in this case are taken from uh, philosophy. Right. So a, a positive statement is meant to be one that describes the way the world is. And a normative statement is one that explains, you know, how we would like the world to be. So one of the things that a lot of people uh, get confused about or things that make them unhappy about economic analysis is that economists typically, you know, evaluate 
ideas that people have and proposals that people make, politicians make, and so forth, and say, hey, look, uh, that's probably not a good idea, and here's why. Mm-hmm. You know, the thing that you want to do is really not feasible, or rather, you know, if you enact this particular policy, you were talking about, uh, you know, buying a house in the mortgage market, right? So politicians said back in the uh, mid-2000s, early to mid-2000s, gee, home ownership is great. It's nice when people own houses. We need more people to own houses. Right. Therefore, we're going to make sure that interest rates get really low and we're going to require that banks give big mortgages you know, to basically anybody who wants them, we're going to make it illegal for them to discriminate on the basis of credit worthiness and all these other sort of things. I'm exaggerating slightly, but sure. only slightly, right? And what happens? Gee, a lot of people uh, get mortgages. A lot of people buy really big houses and we see a housing boom. Gee, you know, isn't that wonderful? Well, the wise economists, the so-called Austrian school economists, like in our camp, you know, they said in advance, hey, you know, if you do that, you got to understand that, you're going to be putting a lot of people uh, in houses that they really can't afford. Sure. You're going to be committing people to a m- schedule of mortgage payments that is just not realistic for them. And eventually that's going to lead to foreclosures, problems in the banking system, you know, kind of the, the stuff that we saw play out in 2008 uh, and, and, and afterward. So, uh, you know, a normative statement would be, gosh, it would be great if everybody could live in a beautiful home. A positive mm-hmm. statement from an economist would be, well, hey, if you subsidize the mortgage market, you're going to get more mortgages, but that's not going to be sustainable. That's going to lead to these other sort of harmful consequences. A lot of people don't like economists because they think they're party poopers. Well, they kind of are. I mean, especially <laughs> especially those from the, you know, the positive standpoint, you know. I mean, it, but look, you, you could say that about anybody who sort of studies the world the way it works. I mean, before the Wright brothers figured out how to make an airplane work, there were all kinds of crazy schemes for heavier than air, you know, flying machines. And I don't know, I guess an engineer or a physicist or whatever sort of expert understands the mechanics of flight could have told these people, hey, yeah, it's probably not such a good idea. You probably don't want to jump off a cliff, you know, with that apparatus strapped to your back. You know, you can call those party poopers. But if more people had listened to them, maybe there would have been fewer accidents. Yeah, exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. So most neoclassical economists support the free market only if a market is perfectly, as you would say, perfectly competitive. Participants have the same information as everyone else. There are no unpriced externalities and the government controls all public goods. How is this ridiculous to think that all these things can be achieved not only in a free market, but to actually think controlling or let's just say steering the economy would fix this, especially when time and time again, any kind of centralized control, and we could say historically, has turned out for the worst. It sounds kind of crazy, but let me give you a little bit of background and context for this for this point, because it's a very important point about what sort of the average sort of mainstream or neoclassical economist believes. You know, we're, we're doing this show in early March 2019. And there's kind of a debate going on right now among the left in the U.S., you know, politically Uh between the sort of more radical democratic socialist Mm -hmm. faction, kind of the Bernie Sanders faction, but now the the, the more charismatic, you know, younger leader is Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. Oh my God. So, So she's kind of at war with the more centrist kind of Clinton democratic faction not to be too sort of geeky but you know in the in in economics right now there's kind of a little tiff between people like paul krugman and uh, larry summers who are mainstream kind of clinton style centrist 
Democrat economists mm-hmm. and this sort of radical socialist faction. There's a there's an economist at uh, SUNY Stony Brook named Stephanie Kelton, who's the leader of a group that identifies with something they call modern monetary theory or MMT. And it's it, the MMT is pretty ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It's certainly not modern and it's not a theory. I haven't even heard about this yet. Yeah, well, these are people who think that Essentially, there's no constraint on government spending in a country like the U.S. because we can always just print dollars. Yeah, I'll stop. (laughs) So to their credit, the sort of centrist Keynesian types like Krugman and and, and Summers, Brad DeLong is another guy, a popular blogger and a Berkeley professor. They have said, no, this MMT thing is, is, is nutty and there's this whole thing going back and forth. But here's my point. Within sort of the radical wing of the of the Democratic Party, among people on the left and, and you know far left and even sort of moderate left, they think that economists per se are these crazy right wingers, mm-hmm. right? Because most economists are not socialists. Exactly. Well, they're not radical free marketeers either. They're kind of something in the middle. They're like a Bush Clinton kind of a thing. Now that seems really radical within academia. Right, because in academia, it's yes. that markets are just a teeny bit not horrible, evil in any context. Right. That's like, whoa, get out of here. That's way, you know, who are you, Genghis Khan? You know, yeah. Yeah, and what's funny though is it seems to me like everything is shifting to the left. Like the center is moving left. It is the radicals that do that. Radicals are the ones that introduce the ideas, right? It, it really is. But that so that gets back to the basic question. Wait. How can you be an economist who understands the market system and understands the role of prices, you know, the kind of stuff that you guys talk about on the show every day? How can you be that but not be a strong supporter of free markets? How can you be kind of a moderate center left type? Who believes in a you know very large role for government in the economy? If you understand how markets work, that's the puzzle for a lot of people like us, right? And exactly. people who are people who are followers of Mises and the more radical sort of Austrian economists that that you already mentioned. To people like that, it's like a mystery. Well, why isn't everybody who understands economics like us? Mm-hmm. And the reason is because within kind of mainstream or neoclassical economics, as you put it, the dominant view is that, yeah, markets are okay. Markets can even be pretty good in certain contexts, but they need to be very carefully regulated, controlled, monitored, government governed. You need a strong government to kind of keep the market from getting all wonky. If you yes. just let market run by itself, it's going to be terrible well, because of the things you mentioned, externalities, mm-hmm. public goods, and so forth. And we can you know, sort of talk about what that means in more detail. What I think is really crazy is that every time we have, it's, I think it's because of statism itself. And I think it's from all the government indoctrination and the way our culture is. And we are so safe in so many ways that we always want to be safer. So if there is a problem or something that, you know, like a, a downside to the free market, which there's always going to be bad things that happen that we always try to regulate. So, but both theory and practice indicate that free market screw-ups are less pervasive and more easily corrected than those of the government enterprises. Yeah, that, that's a very good point that a lot of mainstream economists don't sort of acknowledge because they have in their mind or that they construct this model of a, you know, what they call a perfect market. Mm-hmm. This is a market that, of course, could never exist in a million years. Yeah, exactly. With You know, because we're all flawed human beings. So they say, well, imagine a market that's populated by these super 
you know, super people yeah. with <laughs> knowledge and perfect ability. And they, yeah, the, who's the utopians then, right, guys? Yeah, exactly, yeah. So what they say is, they say, oh, well, in that hypothetical perfect market, yeah, yeah, we agree, that would be great, that would be efficient, and all these great goods and services would be produced, and consumer well-being would be enhanced, yeah, yeah, that's great. But, you know, they say, but in our real world, we have all these so-called market failures, therefore the government needs to jump in and fix those. Now, you've already raised, you know, sort of a key objection to that is, well, but the government is not perfect either. Exactly. So yeah. The imperfect government going to improve on the imperfect market. But I, I think to get to Johnny's original question, you know, what are these so-called market failures? Well, one of the big ones, and you see it in all the economics textbooks, the sort of mainstream textbooks, is so-called unpriced externalities. These are benefits that someone receives without paying for them or costs that are imposed on somebody without compensation so you know to use a a really you know silly example you know i'm a really extremely handsome good-looking guy right so as soon as i walk like yes i'm swooning oh an an econ nerd that's extra handsome i don't want to make you swoon too badly but you know when i walk into a room everybody just gets so excited and they're all so happy and it makes their lives better so you know it's it's kind of like People should be paying me just to show up in the same vicinity because they get all these benefits from how handsome I am. But yet, because I don't have any sort of means of collecting from people, you know, it's like I sit at home too much. I should never be home. I should never be in a room by myself because then we're not as a society realizing all these benefits that we would receive by how handsome you are and it makes everyone feel better about themselves or actually the men would feel worse that could be a possible negative externality that's what i was going to say is that there's always the opposite end is you're just making these other dudes feel bad so there's always a positive and a negative <laughs> it's only working it's only a positive for the women <laughs> right so right in our in our silly hypothetical perfect market that we we're talking about before mm-hmm. you know there some mechanism by which everybody who gets even one teeny bit of benefit from seeing my handsome face from across the room <laughs> I would, love have, this. Yeah. would have to pay me or they would be shielded somehow. And any dude who is worse off because I entered the room would somehow be compensated. Or look at Johnny, right? Yeah. I mean, Johnny uh, walks to the room, everybody feels like they want to lose their lunch, right? I mean, they just... <laughs> <laughs> Johnny can be very polarizing and it just Johnny's <laughs> brand itself like he walks into a room and you really there's the ladies that look for his attention then there's the ladies that look scared and then there's the the guys that go like think oh who's this guy do I have to impress him and then the other guys are like that guy here oh, he's yeah. a douchebag yeah I'm a douchebag you know, like, yeah so, so you're going to be taxed for how good looking and how great your voice is because we have to make it fair for everyone, Johnny. I think and so. You should probably pay some kind of. Um, That's uh, true. Remember, there's a reason why guys like Johnny go into radio. But anyway, <laughs> I, uh, got a, I got a face for radio, Mr. Klein. <laughs> a face for streaming audio. Is the <laughs> I guess the, the point I'm making is they would say that anytime somebody receives a benefit without paying for it, that's sort of inefficient because the the producer of that benefit isn't producing enough of it because they're not getting compensated. Or likewise, anytime anybody engages in any action that makes somebody else, you know, anybody in the world even a little bit worse off, that shouldn't happen. Or rather, that's happening too much because the the actor is not taking into account this potential negative harm. I mean, so more realistic case, 
case you've seen all the textbooks is pollution, mm-hmm. right? So I'm, you know, I, I've got a factory and I produce, uh, you know, I don't know, I, I, I produce uh, coffee mugs. I'm looking at my coffee mug right now, think, trying to think of an example. It's a great coffee mug. You know, my consumers, they, they, they like my coffee mug. They're willing to pay me for it. You know, it costs me $5 worth of materials and labor and so forth to produce this coffee mug. And consumers are willing to pay me, you know, $6 to buy it so I can do it profitably. That all sounds great, right? Mm -hmm. But the wise uh, neoclassical economist jumps in and says, but wait a minute, what about the carbon footprint of your factory? That's right. You're producing these uh, coffee mugs, but there are carbon emissions that come out of your factory. Little, uh, what's the right word? Little wisps of smoke that are wafting up into the atmosphere. I love that word waft. That's a great (laughs) word. No, I have not heard that word in like 10 years. That's awesome. I've, I've always wanted to use the word waft. Uh, there you some- go. We've now used it on the show and now we've, you are the first one. Thank you very much for doing that. That's a great word. So, you know, if that smoke contributes, you know, to global warming and that makes the sea level rise by, you know, one thousandth of a millimeter, you know, then some person who lives near the coast somewhere in the world is going to lose a little bit of value or is going to be harmed some way. Mm-hmm. And we've got to find some way to prevent these factory owners from operating their factories at whatever capacity they want. Sure. It's like they're not taking into account this harm that they're doing on somebody else. Maybe they should be taxed to get them to take that cost into consideration. Now, to their credit, the mainstream economists do not say like the kind of uh, environmental extremists, oh, we should shut down all factories. Sure. They don't say no, uh, you know, no coffee mugs. No production. Produced. No production exactly. at all. Exactly. Yeah, they know better. They know where the government gets funded. <laughs> yeah, the, the economists don't want to take us all the way back to the Stone Age. Like right. The, uh, like some of the radical environmentalists, but they do say, well, you know, you got to slap a, I don't know, a dollar per mug tax on that coffee mug guy. Just to kind of level the playing field. Yeah, exactly. So speaking of this professor, like how do markets though, determine the cost and effect of positive or negative externalities? Like you were saying, you're so handsome. You walk into a room, that's a positive externality. And a negative one is me walking into a room because I'm such a badass. And everyone's going to lose their lunch. So why is taking account of every single externality not really feasible? And finally, in a free market, are there externalities, good or bad, taken into account naturally by the natural moving or shifting of the equilibrium price where it eventually goes to? Because it's always moving, demand shifts, uh, supply shifts. That, that whole thing is moving all the time. So is there like a natural free market solution to this without us even interfering? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, you know, what the textbooks tell the students is, oh, well, the government just calculates, you know, the (laughs) marginal social (laughs) harm. But, you know, in reality, it's completely arbitrary. I mean, you know, if if you have a system like that, well, people talk about carbon taxes in the U.S., right, as a Mm -hmm. solution to climate change and, you know, all across the world, you have different sort of favoring different kinds of carbon tax schemes. How do they come up with a carbon tax? It is completely made up. It's just an arbitrary number. Let's pick a number that is not so high that people will rebel and it's not so low that the environmentalists will be mad and they just basically make up a number. It doesn't, there's no way that you could ever come up with a tax or or a subsidy on the other side that perfectly equates, you know, the sort of global benefits and harms. It's kind of, it's an interesting potentially interesting intellectual exercise mm-hmm. that has no bearing on policy whatsoever. So, so your, your question, so what, you know, what if it's really the case, you know, let's assume that all of the 
standard sort of climate change stories, you know, are true? What if it really is the case that my coffee mug production is contributing to global warming and that does impose harm on people? What do we do about it? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, one approach to this is to say, look, you know, we live in a world that is not perfect. And my examples with the good looking and, and bad looking people are, you know, sort of deliberately silly. But in reality, I mean, we all get benefits and costs from all sorts of things that our neighbors do, right. the people around us do. Part of being in society is that you're not a totally isolated individual. Everything you do has some impact, good or bad, right. on lots and lots of people. Or one response to that is, so what? Exactly. You can't change I mean, you really can't. I mean, you could try to, and that's what the government likes to do. Well, I, I, I actually think social pressure plays a huge role in handling potential externalities. That's true. I agree with that. Put it this way. If I go out to uh, the grocery store and I didn't comb my hair or I didn't shave mm-hmm. or I put on you know, my nicest clothes, people look at me and they go, look at that slob, that bum in the grocery store. That imposes a little bit of harm. But most reasonable people would say, who cares? I mean, that's not, yes, there is a harm, but it's sufficiently small that it's not something, to use a more technical word, it's not actionable or it's not remediable. There's no way to address that in a way yeah. where the, the benefits of dealing with it exceed the cost. Now, if I go out, you know, I don't know, I could go out naked to the grocery store or I could be, you know, I could be in the grocery aisle screaming, cursing at small children, you know. <laughs> Where that really does cause enough of a problem that you want to throw the bum out. That's my Saturday night, dude. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Professor. That's my Saturday night. I scream at kids running around the grocery store naked. But I've seen that. How did I know that? Oh, God. (laughs) I love this guy. I love you, man. Oh, God. So so the question is, you know, how do you tell the difference? Well, one free market solution is, you know, we want to privatize as much of our, as many of our social spaces as we can. I mean, in reality, in the grocery store, in Walmart, in the shopping mall, in Disney World, we let the owners handle this. Right. Property owners decide, hey, is this person on my property causing enough, you know, negative externalities, quote unquote, that I need to take some action? Well, that's a judgment call that a private owner has to make. So one solution to this problem is privatize as much of the sort of common spaces, the so-called public spaces, or the commons, as economists call it, as possible, you know, that sort of internalizes the externality. So the property owner gets the benefits of having a customer on site, an additional customer, but also bears the harm that that customer is going to offend other customers who will then leave, right? right? And the property owner can balance those as, as he or she sees fit. You know, it's a problem when you say, well, it's the oceans or it's the environment or it's, you know, the town square, and now you've got a government or a some sort of larger body that is the owner, so-called. Well, then what do you do? That, that's a much more difficult problem. I mean, let's not be naive about it. There is no obvious way to handle that, right? Exactly. Is it really the case that this little bit of, what was the word I used, a little smoke that's wafting, is it really yes. causing harm across the other side of the globe? Maybe that's just an insoluble problem. And we just say, well, hey, we live in an imperfect world. There's really not much that we can do about that. Exactly. It's kind of like the butterfly effect. And speaking of which, I really loved your speech on property rights in conjunction with the you know negative and positive ex- 
externalities regarding airspace with your drone example. I thought that was brilliant. And how are property rights explained in a situation where you have a drone that's flying around, you know, your town, like I I live in Seattle, now I live in Phoenix. Or over your house. Or over your home or whatever. You have drones everywhere. They're everywhere. I liked it how you explain it. How are property rights explained in a situation where the property owner exercises the use of the airspace and how can these matters be solved with just the ideas of basic property ownership yeah great 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 question so you you mentioned the uh you mentioned the coast theorem earlier yes sir. c-o-a-s-e coast that is named after that's a theorem that's named after a famous kind of free market neoclassical economist named ronald coast uh who who developed a sort of a unusual way or a different way of thinking about the kinds of problems that we're talking about. So here's what uh, what Ronald Coase, here's how he approached the problem. He said, look, the sort of Klein style answer, instead of having the government, you know, tax these so-called negative unpriced externalities or unpriced harms, instead of having the government subsidize unpriced benefits or positive externalities, mm-hmm. really what we do is just assign property rights as much as we can and let private property owners kind of duke it out you know like like i was using in my my example with disney world or or the store let them figure it out Mm -hmm. problem with that is well in some cases it's not obvious like sort of who the property rights should belong to Mm -hmm. so the example that i use kind of in the lecture that you're you're referring to and maybe you can link to this uh, on your site if people want to check it out i will sir i will great speech Great presentation. Yeah, thank you. So, if if uh, let's say that I, you know, let's say I've got, a, I'm a homeowner. I've I've, I've got a, a house and, and a backyard. If some person, you know, walks into my backyard with their, you know, kitchen trash can and they just dump their trash on my, you know, in my yard and walk away. Well, obviously they've done some harm to me and to my property. We don't say I'm the victim of a negative externality. We say that the guy just, you know, he committed a crime, right? Or a property crime. He just destroyed my property with his garbage. In that case, it's pretty obvious that if I own that land, you know, I can take him to court. I can sue him for damages. Mm-hmm. I can have the court, you know, issue an injunction that says he can't put his trash in my yard anymore. We all know how to handle a case like that. Mm-hmm. But what about a more ambiguous one where, you know, let's say Amazon has got its its drone fleet and the drone fleets are delivering packages uh, all through my neighborhood. Okay, they got a really loud drone and the drone is flying over my house and, you know, it's keeping me awake at night or it's giving me a headache or, you know, I, I work at night and sleep during the day. I can't sleep because of these stupid drones all the time. Right. You know, is that more like a case where somebody's dumping trash in my yard and I should be able to stop them from doing it? Or is, is it just one of those things? Hey, that's just the way life is. Is it like the wafting smoke? Well, hey, too bad for you, but there is noise in this world. You know, just deal with it. Mm-hmm. Which case is it closer to? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you know, that's not kind of obvious. We got to sort of think about that. Now, what this guy Coase said, he said, look, it really doesn't matter whether we say, okay, if you have a yard, you own all of the air above your yard up to infinity and beyond, and you have the legal right to stop a drone from flying over your yard. Or if we say, look, pal, you know, you live in a neighborhood, there are going to be drones flying above you sometimes. If you don't like the noise too bad, just deal with it. Coast said, as long as we implement 
some sort of fixed rule, we say the rule is one or the other, we kind of get the same sort of outcome anyway. Okay. And his reason was, well, look, what if uh, Amazon is a really profitable company or people are really willing to pay a lot to get packages delivered by drones, right? So assume that having drones flying through the neighborhood really generates a lot of economic value that generates a lot of profit for Amazon because customers are willing to pay a lot for that service. Right. Let's assume that's the case. Well, look, if the courts say Peter Klein has the right to pure peace and quiet above his land and any drone that flies over his house, even, you know, 30,000 feet above, that's a violation of his property rights. Right. Well, in a case like that, yeah, I like to sleep. I like peace and quiet, but there's big money involved in drone delivery. What is likely to happen in that case, according to according to Ronald Coase, is that Amazon is going to knock on my door and say, OK, look, we know that you have the legal right to keep our drones away. Mm-hmm. We know that you can sue us if our drones get anywhere near your house or you can have the court forbid drones from coming any place near your property. But look, we're talking millions of dollars here. What if we write you a check? Right. Pay you some large number to, you know, put a set of noise canceling headphones on your head or go sleep at a motel on the other side of town or soundproof your house or whatever. Look, there's money to be made from flying drones. We'll give you a piece of that action. We'll pay you to let us fly your drones over your house. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. It makes sense. My neighbor is doing something with his garbage. It's really valuable. Maybe my neighbor could pay me to let me dump garbage on my yard and not agree to it. Totally could. Or a parking lot. And that happens all the time. As long as he's paying for it. Exactly. If it's a big enough check. Likewise, if what Amazon does is really not generating a lot of economic value, uh, then even if they legally can make noise, why wouldn't I just go to Amazon and say, look, I don't like the fact that you guys fly over my house. It it bothers me. It irritates me. I'll give you 20 bucks to go away or I'll give you 200 bucks to go away. I mean, if it's not really generating much value for Amazon to be able to do that, then they'd probably take my 20 bucks. Exactly. Another route. So Coase's argument was if it's possible for people to get together and negotiate over these things, then as long as somebody has the property rights, you're going to get property resources you know, used in their kind of most valuable ways. Now, it makes a difference which way the money goes, right? Money's going to change chance in a different direction, uh-huh. but you're kind of going to get the same basic outcome either way. So the most important thing, you know, instead of worrying about, oh gosh, we can't, we can't use property rights to solve these problems because we don't know who to give the property rights to. Exactly. So, Look, yeah. just give them to somebody and let the market work it out. And that's better than giving them to nobody. Awesome. Anyways, though, this is Johnny Rocket here at Blast Off, And I'm here with my ray of truth, Miss Rayleigh Lightheart. And we're talking to Peter G. Klein. Guys, make sure you check out Free Talk Live. They're America's fastest growing number one pro-liberty radio program, Free Talk Live. Free Talk Live is on seven nights per week on 190 plus radio stations, coast to coast, and is pro-liberty every issue, every day, every time. So check out freetalklive.com again. And that's freetalklive.com. Anyways, though, this is Johnny Rocket, always launching ideas, and we'll be right back with Mr. Peter Klein. Rock and roll. My boots all worn on and my hands hung low. Open aimless with nowhere to go 
economics today than I'd care to admit that I want to know. But it's, it's awesome. I, I really love economics and we're here with Mr. Peter G. Klein. Hey guys. Thank you so much for being here, sir. And uh, great answers on part one of the show. And here's the thing. What we do here on the second segment, you've had the opportunity to experience Rocket Fire Rocket on the old Fire. Johnny Rocket Launchpad. And uh, here we go again with our version on Blast Off. So, what we do here on Rocket Fire, sirs, I'm going to ask you a series of 10 questions. These questions will be politically related. And if you can answer these questions between 30 to 60 seconds, that'd be badass. Professor Klein, are you ready to play Rocket Fire? I'm ready. All right, here we go. Question one. Why does the United States government insist on getting involved in dietary affairs? Because it's filled with busybodies who can't mind their own affairs and just like to tell other people what to do. <laughs> there you go. All right. Question two. What does Austrian economics predict? Oh, gosh. Well, Austrian economics by itself doesn't really predict a lot because it's it's sort of a positive description of how the world works, like we said before. But exactly. a skilled entrepreneur who knows Austrian economics can make better predictions than someone who doesn't know Austrian economics. So Austrian economics is basically just you can put the, the numbers together and then whatever the number is, you can based on that calculation, you can therefore assume that this will happen. Yeah, I mean, look, Austrian economics expresses things in a kind of an if-then format, right? If this happens, then this consequence will follow. But, you know, did the first condition really hold in the particular real-world case you're looking at? That's a judgment call. That's not something that theory tells you. So you need to apply human judgment in sort of putting the general principles to work to address a specific issue that you're interested in. Right on. Question three. How do lobbyists and government intervention distort price signals and corrupt markets? Oh, gosh. Well, uh, in, in, in so many ways, right? So government intervention makes prices higher or lower than they otherwise would be. It uh, changes what, what businesses and consumers you know, purchase, what they, what they produce, what they consume. It makes it much more difficult for all of us to coordinate our behavior because the prices are not the ones that reflect the actual scarcities of different resources and, and the values that people place on them. So it just messes things up. Right on. Question four. Libertarian philosophy is important to what we do, but do you think economics could actually be more important to the new student or novice to liberty? Uh, great question. Uh, I don't know if it's more important than, you know, moral philosophy and, and, and history and so forth, but it, it definitely is important because it tells you certain things that, you know, that definitely won't work and certain things that can work. And it does allow you to address you know, when non-libertarians say, oh, well, in your libertarian paradise, you know, how will X, Y, Z work out? Well, knowing some economics allows you to describe some plausible scenarios for how people would work things out right. in a purely voluntary society. Right on. Question five. Ludwig von Mises argued that rational economic calculation under socialism was impossible. Could you explain why he might be right on this? Which I, I know he, I, I know he's right, actually. <laughs> 
I get 30 to 60 seconds. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you can take it long. You can go a little longer on this one. I... Well, I know I can I can do it. I'm, I'm ready. Okay. <laughs> you time me on this one. All right, here we go. Begin. Mises, Mises' argument was that Mises understood socialism to mean a society where the government owns all of the productive resources. Mm-hmm. Mises said if there are no private owners of resources because the government owns any, everything, then resources cannot be exchanged on markets. There's nobody to exchange. So there are no prices for resources. And therefore, there's no way for decision makers who want to build things, make things, produce things, distribute things. There's no way to know what's the most efficient use of resources for doing things. You don't know the relative values and scarcities of resources in economic sense because they don't have prices. Therefore, socialist planners are basically just groping in the dark when they decide, you know, where to put a, a factory or where to put a town or how much, what kinds of shoes to make and so forth. There can never be a rational allocation of resources without prices because to have prices, you need private property. And under socialism, there's no private property. How many seconds? Yeah, you did really good. That was definitely around a minute. <laughs> around a minute. For me, achievement unlocked. Achievement unlocked. You have now the golden armor outfit for your game <laughs> of Red Dead number two. Question six. Do you think economics is failing in general? I mean, do you think it's lost popularity, momentum in our modern day culture? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I mentioned uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez earlier, and a lot of people like to pick on her because she says kind of silly things. To be fair, all politicians say silly things. But there was something she said a few weeks ago to the effect of, you know, don't don't bother me with your sort of facts and analysis. What's more important (laughs) is my vision and my enthusiasm and so forth. I mean, that is frustrating to an economist. That is. uh, People aren't interested in you know, sort of the practicalities of whether policies will work. They're interested in, you know, uh, virtue signaling and uh, uh, being inspiring and so forth. Uh, But more specifically, you see a lot of totally, totally zany ideas. Uh, The state of Oregon has just recently passed a statewide uh, rent control measure. Almost all economists, not just radical free market Austrian economists, but almost all economists agree that rent control is a terribly ineffective policy. It doesn't help with affordable housing. Uh, it, it reduces the quality and the quantity of the housing stock. It's bad for low income renters. There are just really no good economic arguments for rent control. And yet politicians love it. It's It makes them feel good about themselves, it makes them sound good, and I guess there's enough popular support in Oregon for rent control. You see, you know, the fight for 15, $15 minimum wage movement all across the U.S. I mean, these are all bad yeah, policies from the point bad. of view of economic analysis, but they are, are extremely popular. You know, are things worse today in this regard than in the past? I, I don't know. I suppose if you talk to you know, a specialist in English grammar or in mathematics, they would also complain that nobody listens to them and yeah. <laughs> violate their rules all the time. So sure. I don't know if One includes but... theft and, and the initiation of aggression, unfortunately. And That's I think true. That, that changes things, yes. All right, question seven. Would you agree with the statement that societies do not need a, a profound philosophy to produce an exchange? The motivation comes from instinct. And do you agree with that statement? 
Yeah, well, I, I guess I'm agnostic on it. Let, let me put it this way. Even if people really don't understand how a market economy works and why free markets are, are important and valuable, it's still likely that they will, in fact, engage in exchange. Uh, this was the way Adam Smith put it. Uh, his, he had a famous phrasing that people have this sort of innate propensity to truck, barter, and exchange, as he put it, meaning people will just naturally form markets and a division of labor will emerge. I think that's probably true, but I'm also sympathetic to Ludwig von Mises' argument that, yeah, but you still, we still need to be talking to people all the time about the benefits of free markets and, and, and having a free society. Otherwise, you know, we'll sort of lose it for political reasons. I'm, I'm with you on that. Question eight. The more the state increases its powers over the economy, the more motivated special interests become to take control of the state. Does a true monopoly exist in a free society? Like, for example, Microsoft in the 90s. Was that really a monopoly or a state-created one? So I'm going to treat those as two two questions. That's uh, fine. On the issue of, 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 of rent-seeking and lobbying, you're absolutely right. There's a, there's a cute phrase. I've heard it attributed to P.J. O'Rourke. I don't know if he borrowed it from someone else. It says, uh, when you put politicians in charge of buying and selling, the first things to be bought and sold are politicians. <laughs> right. No doubt. In other words, the more control you give the state over the economy, the more worth it it is for firms and individuals to try to get a to, to be able to get some of that control for themselves. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Which is why when I hear you know when we talk about uh, you know cam- campaign finance reform proposals and other ideas for uh, reducing uh, the influence of big money on politics, blah blah blah. You know what I always say to that is, look, none of those reforms really address the root issue, which is that government has too much control over the economy. I would like to see a world in which nobody wants to lobby or bribe a politician because it isn't worth it since politicians can't do anything to help you. Unfortunately, we're, we're, we're very far from that world. Uh, your other question about monopoly. Yeah, the way I define monopoly, no, in a free market, firms can only become as large as sort of the market will permit them mm-hmm. in terms of their ability to satisfy consumers in a way that's better than what other firms can do. So, no, the only monopolies that are harmful in a market system are the government-enabled, government-aided, or government-granted monopolies, not just big firms. Right on. Question nine. What are, briefly, what are some of the myths of a market failure? Yeah, we talked about externalities uh, earlier. I hope we'll talk about so-called public goods uh, later. People talk about um, distribution of income as a kind of market failure, um, but Again, that's markets don't distribute income. Income doesn't pre-exist only to be distributed later, right? Income and, and value and wealth are created by right. actions of participants on the market. Good point. What you commonly see in the textbooks besides things like income dist- distribution are externalities, public goods, and monopoly. And we've already touched on some of those, and we can, we can touch on them in, in our next segment as well. All right, and question 10, the final question. Are property rights exchangeable in the market? Well, yeah, of course they are. I mean, property rights can sometimes be attenuated by government, and government can restrict the exchanges of certain kinds of property rights. But look, in a truly free society, what is a property right? A property right is the legal title to some activity or to some uh, access to some sort of resource. And like any other valuable asset, property titles can and should be exchangeable on a market. Anyway, so that's Rocket Fire. Give it up for Professor Peter G. Klein. Man, he 
News. This is Johnny Rocket with Raylene Lightheart. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. Rock and roll. is a children's media company for children's ages 0 through 7. Our stories teach the foundational principles that underlie libertarianism and relate them in a manner that even the youngest children can understand and enjoy. Little Libertarians was founded by attorney and libertarian activist Dory Goikman. We teach the basics of self-ownership, non-aggression, and property rights to babies, toddlers, and young kids. Use coupon code ROCKET, R-O-C-K-E-T, for 40% off of Little Libertarian products at www.littlelibertarians.com. Again, that's www.littlelibertarians.com. from the Mises Institute, and it's always a pleasure to have you here. And again, great answers on that damn rocket fire. Kicked ass well, on thank that. You, thank you, Johnny and Raylene. <laughs> I love talking about these things. All right, here we go. So, Raylene, you got the helm. Right. I actually really want to let you talk about public goods and public good or bad and what that entails and where do property rights fall under that? So in in mainstream economics textbooks, public goods are defined as sort of a special type of good or service that cannot be provided in the usual way in the market because there is no way for entrepreneurs to provide that good at a profit. So example would be something like, uh, you know, a fireworks display. So the idea is, well, if I do a fireworks display in my backyard, all of my neighbors will benefit from seeing the fireworks show. So the fact that one person is watching it does not, in most cases, diminish the enjoyment that somebody else gets from watching it. So, exactly. right? so lots of people, yeah. lots of people can consume it at the same time without it getting used up. Unlike you know, a loaf of bread, if you're eating it, I can't, you know, once you you eat it, it's gone, I can't eat it. But lots of people can consume a fireworks show at the same time without it getting used up. And it's really difficult in most cases to exclude non-payers, right? So the the idea is, look, let's say a fireworks show costs, you know, $10,000, a high quality one to put on. Uh I would never do that as a private person, as as an entrepreneur, because there's no way I could collect enough revenue from the people who watch it to be able to pay for it because anybody could just say, oh, well, no thanks, I don't want to pay. And then they can still watch it anyway, hoping that enough other people will pay. And the theory says, well, look, this is never going to work because everybody's going to try to free ride on somebody else. So no one will be willing to pay knowing that they can't that they might be benefiting their neighbors who, who aren't paying. Therefore, nobody will pay. Therefore, entrepreneurs can't raise any revenue. Therefore, there will never be any fireworks shows, even if everybody who sees it would get enough benefit that if you could somehow force them to pay, it would be worth it for the entrepreneur uh, to, to put it on. So the, the claim is there are certain kinds of goods and services that have these spillover benefits and right. private market participants cannot figure out a way to produce them. Examples, education, right? Education doesn't just benefit the student who is educated. It also benefits all of society because we all want to live in a society where people are educated. Uh, You know, environmental protection, uh, basic scientific research, Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. right? Every We all as a society benefit from these experiments that are done in the laboratory. We may not know for many years, right, what the practical benefits will be, but it, it would not be profitable for for a capitalist entrepreneur to right. basic science because they can't make any money from doing it. Sure. Right. You need the government to do these things. According to the standard theory, the only way to get the right amount of education and, and, and basic research and to get fireworks shows is to have state, local or national or international government bodies just do it and use taxpayer money to pay for it. So in my silly fireworks example, you know, the city or the county or the region or the neighborhood association is supposed to go to everybody and, and basically stick a gun in their face and say, and say we want to buy fireworks. Exactly. (laughs) Which is ridiculous. I mean, if you want to voluntarily donate that money to fireworks, that's on you. I think that's the better option. I mean, this goes back to your earlier question. The government says, okay, we have calculated that you get $3.42 worth of benefit from a fireworks show. Give us $3.42 right now or you go to jail. We collect that from all of the people in the neighborhood. We give that money to the fireworks operator who then puts on the fireworks show. And according to the theory, everybody's better off. Right. You just have to force people to contribute to these public goods, which they really want anyway. And you're really helping them by sticking a gun in their face and demanding that they <laughs> right. yeah. pull, the, pull the trigger. So we can talk about what's you know all the different ways that that theory is wrong, and what are some other ways you know to produce these so-called public goods. I know you would, you would want to talk about lighthouses as another example. That might be a good way to sort of get into it. Oh well, I was actually going to ask you. Um, so. The public good, and, and I understand consent philosophically and understand why that that's wrong. I also understand the um, obvious evidence that the state isn't very good at what they do whenever they do it. But so if we have the state thrown into this situation where they are now deeming things as public good, then this is where it's kind of like bumps up on the cronyism, correct? Because Yeah, let's talk about right. cronyism. Bring it home. Yeah, so because so wouldn't we revert when they— yeah, because they can grow themselves and take all that extra money now because it isn't something that someone would profit at normally. But the government does profit by it because they keep saying, oh, well, this is terrible. Look at how bad this is. They take more money for the, pub- for the public schools, let's say. And then eventually, people are able to get rich in public school and in this public good. And it's a redistribution and, and theft and, instead of production and exchange, correct? Yeah, you know, you're exactly right. I mean, let's, let's think of it a couple of different ways. I mean, uh, one is just for sure on the technical side. I mean, is it really true that these kinds of goods and services, education, fireworks shows and so forth, mm-hmm. that they cannot be produced profitably on the market? Well, here's here's an interesting example. Uh, just, we had a, a visitor at, at our school um, a few weeks ago who was talking about the history of the radio industry. So if you think about old, I don't know if any of your listeners are as old as me, but, you know, old timey broadcast. Yeah, radio exactly yes broadcast tv right you you know you you broadcast from a big tower the radio waves go out there into the ether and anybody with the right kind of receiver right can stick their antenna up in the air they can they can listen to that signal and they can enjoy the radio right so when radio was invented people said well obviously the government has to produce radio because there's no way that any private individual would want to do a radio broadcast because how are you gonna how are you gonna make any money from it? You you can't prevent somebody from listening who doesn't pay. You know, with a newspaper, you can say, well, you don't pay, you don't get the newspaper. But once you start broadcasting radio waves, how do you stop somebody who didn't pay from listening to it? There's no way that you can. Therefore, gosh, only the government can produce radio. Exactly. Well, let's think about it. First of all, some very clever entrepreneurs figured out a way to address this problem and still make money. Advertising? 
Exactly. Advertising. Yes. Bingo. Good job, really. This is what we this is what we do too. Still to this day, we do advertisement. I mean, one of my favorite examples right now, by far the world's biggest provider of so-called public goods is Google. Right. Right. Uh-huh. Doesn't charge me a dime to search, to navigate for my email, for all of these incredibly valuable services that Google provides because they make money from ads, right? Same right. thing with Facebook, Twitter, and so forth. And selling uh, our information, but. <laughs> yeah. But of course, I, I, I implicitly consent to yeah. them having my information when I use use the service. Well, we can get back to that later, but my point is, so they overcame, the radio guys overcame the free rider problem by figuring out advertising. But the other thing is, the reason I made the joke at the beginning about, you know, only your older listeners will get this, right? Nowadays, who listens to broadcast radio? Nobody. I do, actually. I do. Okay, well, sorry. A few. A few <laughs> no, I do. I, I still like the old, old-timey sound. But I'm sorry. Go ahead, sir. I, we have to wrap this up, though, really quick. We got, like, one minute. Oh, oh, you're right. What I mean is uh, now we have uh, with satellite radio and sort of digital encryption, if you don't have a serious XM subscription, you can't listen to the channel. Right. right. If you don't subscribe to Netflix, if you don't have a Netflix username and password, you can't watch the broadcast. So technology allows us to discriminate between people who paid and didn't pay in ways that aren't possible before. So entrepreneurs on the market, they can work around these sort of technical difficulties Yes. Where, where the, so you can't provide this thing profitably. And we can do that with education. We can do that with healthcare. We can do that with scientific research. There are lots of ways, creative ways, that entrepreneurs can profitably produce these so-called public goods. I love it. I think this is brilliant, and I, I'm glad you ended it on that point. Anyway, so Raylene, prepare for landing. Roger that, Johnny. Seatbelts and shoulder harnesses. Your body, your choice. Landing gear and downward expanders. NAP initiated. Anti-state superchargers. Defragged and woke. Landing lights and guest websites. Professor Klein, give us your .com, sir. Hey, I am at PeterGKlein.com. That is Peter G-K-L-E-I-N. You can also find me on Twitter, at Peter G. Klein. I would love to hear from your uh, listeners and continue this conversation. This is great. This is great. Anyway, so what we're going to do, sir, is we're going to put you on the after party. We have some questions from you from our listeners. So anyway, so this is Johnny Rocket with Miss Raylene Lightheart. Oh, and Miss Raylene Lightheart. If people want to hear more of Mr. Klein, where would they go and how would they do that? Oh my gosh. If you want to hear more from Peter Klein, please oh, go to supportblastoff.com. I do. What, what's the oh, website? What's the website again? Supportblastoff.com. Oh, and wow. subscribe. And if you give us a dollar an episode, you can hear the after party and only two books to listen to the all night or two. All right. So anyway, so make sure you do that. Go to supportblastoff.com. Johnny Rocket, always launching ideas. We'll see you next week. Rock and roll. 